you may have noticed and has already been mentioned a couple of times, we've got a lot of youth leading and serving this morning, which is particularly exciting for me uh, since I'm the youth pastor. And it has been a privilege. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing? We need a hug after this. Okay. Um, it's been a privilege to serve in this role for the last seven and a half years. And I just want to take a moment uh, to let you know what God is doing uh, with our youth group right now, particularly with some of our high school students. God is moving in some very significant ways in the hearts of our youth. So many of them are truly walking with the Lord and seeking to live a life for Christ. It's not a retreat high, it's a genuine walk. Now we, we've still got plenty of room for growth and maturity and sanctification, but there really is a desire among them to love and serve the Lord. They're giving their time. There are dozens of them serving this church and this community. Over 20 of them serve in KidZone and Awana every week. Just a few months ago, 25 of them woke up and got to the Greenway by 7 a.m. on Thanksgiving morning and helped the hospitality house raise $14,000 with a 5K turkey trot race. There are youth giving money to people in need. Over the last several years, the youth group has supported two compassion kids and given over $5,000 to that ministry, coming right out of their own pockets. Several of our youth have personally adopted a compassion child and they're funding their needs through a part-time job. And sometimes they're doing both at the same time. They're giving um, and going. At Christmas time, about 50 of them served at the OCC warehouse. They also pulled their money together and bought dozens of gifts out of the Samaritan's Purse Christmas catalog. We sent blankets and chickens and honeybees and food and Bibles and gospel booklets and two goats to people in great need. We were especially excited about the goats because you can't buy those at Walmart. Our mission trips to El Salvador um, have been life-altering for many of our youth. We have about a dozen high school youth who are feeling called to international missions, either for a season or for a lifetime. About a dozen. One of our leaders, Melissa Lonis, is about to leave for a 15-month mission trip. So it's not just happening among the youth, it's also happening with the leaders as well. Three youth have approached me in the last month and said, I think God wants me to be in another part of the world and serve him. God is moving them, moving in them in a powerful way right now. And I, I praise him for it. And I just want to say thank you um, to this church for investing uh, as much as you have in them over the years. Uh, it is paying dividends. I have more to say about that later on um, and what God is doing in and through them. But before we go any further, I want us to pray and ask uh, God to open our hearts to his word this morning. So will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word that you have spoken and you have written it down so that we can read it and study it and hear it week after week, month after month, year after year. It is a precious gift. Would you open our hearts to it today? Help us to receive it. Help us to not just listen to it, but to do it. Our time on earth is so short compared to eternity. Help us to not run after the things of this world, but after the things of you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you brought your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah is a big Old Testament book. It has 66 chapters. It's not the easiest book to read, but it is a worthy book uh, to read and study for many reasons. One of those reasons is that the New Testament quotes from it all the time. So the book of Isaiah has a significant influence on our doctrine and lifestyle. 
It's worthy of your time, and a good study Bible or a basic commentary can help you make your way through those big 66 chapters. Ultimately, the book of Isaiah communicates that God will bring about an astonishing plan full of grace uh, and mercy, and he'll bring it to wicked humanity. And as Christians, we understand that Jesus fulfilled this promise and plan. God deals with the sin of Israel in a lot of different ways throughout the book, but ultimately, he promises to deal with the sin of Israel and the sin of the world through the promised Savior and King, Jesus. We're skipping 57 chapters to get to our passage today, but our passage is found in that third and final section of Isaiah. Chapters 56 to 66 communicate a theme, namely that God will bring about judgment and salvation, and in doing so, he will reveal who is truly righteous and who is truly wicked. Chapter 56 opens the section with God promising Israel that their salvation and deliverer is coming. It ends in chapter 66 with Jerusalem comforted and at peace because all of God's enemies have finally been dealt with. There's a lot there that we can't really get into right now, but as New Testament believers, we shouldn't miss the parallel. Even though Jesus has now brought the salvation Isaiah predicted, we are still waiting for his return and for all to be made finally right. So because we are living in this now, not yet tension, we must ask the same question that the Israelites had. What do I do while I wait on my deliverer and my savior? Chapter 58 verses 1 through 12 provides at least one answer. And the truth that is there is basically repeated in the New Testament. In passages like Matthew 25, 31 to 46, that was the the song that they just did during the offering is based off of that passage. And the reason you never heard it is because they just wrote it as a, as a youth group about three or four weeks ago. It's a pretty cool thing that's happening up there. Luke 4, 16 to 21 also ties in with Isaiah 58, James 1, 27, 1 Timothy 5, 3, 1 John 3, 16 to 18. All of those passages tie in to the same ideas in Isaiah 58. Here's the outline of Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 12. Verse 1, God declares that the nation of Israel is in sin. Verses 2 through 5, God's description of the sin. And verses 6 through 12, God's description of a pleasing fast. It's a lifestyle. God's promise to those who live differently, we might say, radically. So we're going to dive into it. And as we dive into it, I'll read uh, as we make our way through it. Verse 1 says this. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. God has a serious sin he wants Isaiah to confront the nation of Israel with. And he doesn't want Isaiah to speak calmly or quietly about it. He wants him to scream at the top of his lungs. God tells Isaiah to lift his voice like a trumpet. And this time that would have been like a ram's horn that had a piercing volume that would get the entire attention, get the attention of the entire community. So clearly this sin is serious. What is it? Let's look at verses 2 through 5. It says this, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to me. Why have you fasted and see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day... I will not make your voice to be heard on high. 
Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? So in verses 2 through 5, God describes the sin. And God presents this sin almost like a conversation. God is bringing up religious activity that the nation of Israel is engaged in regularly. It's things like seeking God, enjoying Bible study, acting righteous and Delighting in times of prayer and worship. Now, that's a curveball, don't you think? I mean, if God wants Isaiah to scream at the nation of Israel about sin, you would expect God to bring up all kinds of horrible immorality. Instead, he brings up a bunch of religious activity. The presentation of this sin, it continues in this conversation form. The people are asking, why have we fasted and you've ignored it? In the Bible, fasting is the practice of abstaining from food for a period of time to devote uh, yourself more fully to God. We don't hear about it much uh, in today's churches, um, but it is a New Testament practice that uh, is uh, legitimate even today. But it's completely different from dieting or starving yourself. It's neither one of those. It's a very specific kind of um, abstaining from food for just a period of time. So what's going on here? God God is upset with religious activity. Why? Because that is all that it was. Apparently, while there was some sort of joy in Bible study and prayer meeting and worship service, it was all very self-centered activity, likely more external show than inward reality. Their hearts were still hard. And even a very self-denying activity like fasting was distorted. Listen to what it says again. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you, you fast only to quarrel and to fight, to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. So they were taking this time out to, to give to God. And while they did that, they made things harder for other people. And then it all ended in a fight. God was not impressed with that. This religious activity wasn't real. Now, this danger is still alive today. In Matthew 23, 28, Jesus told the Pharisees that they looked righteous on the outside, but inwardly they were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. James 1, 19 says, Do not really listen to the word, so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So we must be careful that, we don't, uh, that we're not doing religious things just to be and look Religious. While you might fool others, you cannot fool fool God. He knows your heart. But our God is patient and merciful. When he confronts us with sin, he also offers us the promise uh, of new life, real righteousness, and the gift of himself. When the Israelites were hearing about their sin, they were also hearing that God would bring a redeemer who would deal with their sin decisively. There are some amazing passages in Isaiah that speak of the Savior who would come and has now come. You and I are on the other end of the promises in Isaiah. The Israelites were looking forward to the cross and we look back at the cross. Here in Isaiah 58, God offers himself to the Israelites, but he he does clearly communicate where he is and where he isn't. In verses 6 through 12, God basically says, I'm not in these empty rituals or these activities that you've somehow made all about you and not about me. Look at what God says, verses 6 
through 12. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness. And your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. Make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repair of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Here we have God's description of a fast that is pleasing to him. And in this case, it has very little to do with abstaining from food. Instead, it has everything to do with living a very selfless life so that we can help others in need. And it is in this selfless living that God's presence and his power and his provision will be known in mighty ways. His presence, his power, his provision. Don't you want that? Now, we must be careful here God was not giving the Israelites a bunch of good works that would save them. And they're not good works that will save us either. God clearly communicated to the Israelites they couldn't save themselves, and we can't either. But while they waited for salvation and while we wait for Christ's return, this is where we can find God moving and working and taking great delight. So verses 6 through 12 is God's description of a pleasing fast and then also God's promises uh, to those who live a very different life radical life. In verses 6 through 12, God lays out five actions, five areas of ministry that he wants his people to be doing. We're going to move through them quickly. First, he wants us freeing people from bondage and oppression. There are four verbs in verse 6 that speak of liberating people. The idea is not only that we pull people out of all kinds of bondage and oppression, but that we also seek to destroy the things that lead to bondage and oppression. You don't just loosen the straps in verse 6. You also break the yoke or the chains that hold people down. You don't just rescue kids out of child trafficking. You seek to destroy the very practice itself. Second, you feed the hungry. Very interesting here. God basically says to the Israelites in Isaiah 58, instead of fasting from food, I'd rather you take the food to those who need it. Feed them. Third, he says, house the homeless. Make sure they have a roof over their head. Fourth, he says, clothe the needy. We see this same expectation in the New Testament. James says it this way in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And that's what the Israelites had, a dead faith that left needy people hungry and naked. Fifth, he says, respect the rejected. Verse 9, God says, stop pointing the finger at other people. And the context seems to imply needy people. 
Stop pointing the finger at those in great need, at those who are currently in bondage. Stop pointing the finger at them and belittling them. It doesn't please God when we do things like that. You see, the Israelites were engaged in a lot of religious activity, but they weren't loving very many needy people. And God had a big problem with that. He still does. I think this is why Jesus spent so much time with poor people. While Jesus walked the earth proclaiming good news, he spent much of his time helping the needy. Jesus left the riches of heaven and walked among the hungry, the hurting, and the social outcasts. When he was preaching the gospel, he was far less likely to be doing it in the really nice neighborhood and far more likely to be doing it in the really rough, run-down neighborhood. He made his mission field quite clear from the beginning. In Luke 4, Jesus takes up the scroll of Isaiah reads from chapter 61 and says, these verses are talking about me. This is what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Throughout the rest of his earthly ministry, he went out of his way to help widows, to love and help children, to love and help lepers and prostitutes. When people were hungry, he gave them some food. Pastor Scott A. has been taking us through Ephesians. And in Ephesians 2.10, Paul said we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. In Titus 2.14, Paul said Christ redeemed us so that we would be zealous for good works. Now don't miss this. God saves us for more than avoiding evil. He saves us to go and do good. God wanted the Israelites, he wants us to not be known primarily for what we don't do, but by what we do do. Yes, we sing and yes, we pray. Yes, we study the Bible. All so that we are able to go and give good news and liberty to the lost and needy. And just to make sure we understand how serious God is about this, he says in Isaiah 58.10, pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Pour yourself out. In Hebrew, that word desire can also mean soul. So it could read pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the soul of the afflicted. The way things are structured here is intentional. Isaiah is playing off of this fasting idea uh, that he's been talking about earlier. And God is in effect saying this through Isaiah. If I have to choose, I'd much rather you exhaust yourself and your resources for the sake of those who don't have what they need. God is serious about his people helping the needy. But he is also abundantly generous in his gifts. Abundantly generous. God offers huge promises to those who spend themselves for others. In verses 6 through 12, he says that if we will live radical lives, these are the kinds of things we'll experience. Listen to them. First, light and healing will rush into the dark and hurting places of our soul. Does that sound good? Got some dark parts in your soul? Need some light and healing to rush into them? You'll find that as you serve and help others in greater need than yourself. God's actual presence surrounding us and serving as our rear guard. Like feeling him, knowing he's right there with us. Three, answers and guidance when we need them. Fourth, satisfied souls. And fifth, 
the experience of being a watered garden that is continually able to supply others with a refreshing drink. Get the picture of that in your mind, a watered garden. Water's just pooled up, right? And that's what you feel like. And you're able to be a spring for other people in need. These are incredible promises that were bought by our sin bearer and our way shower, Jesus. Jesus came and did what no Gentile or Jew could do, live perfectly in a broken world. He perfectly pleased God the Father. He died the death that every Jew and Gentile deserved, and then he rose again to save us from sin and send us out to a world in desperate need of truth and love. He showed us how he wanted us to live and who he wanted us to spend ourselves for. And then he bore our sin so that we could be saved and do what he did. Salvation empowers us to spend ourselves for others. And I praise God that uh, I am blessed to be a part of a church body that is doing good deeds in the name of Jesus. I'd like to take just a few moments to point out some of the things that are taking place among this body coming out of this building week after week. Did you know that over 25 children who would have been orphans have been adopted by families in this church? 25. That's awesome. We support a variety of organizations and ministries with manpower and money. Hunger Coalition, Hospitality House, Hope Center, just to name three. We're financially supporting an orphanage in Peru and reaching out to kids in Peru who live in a garbage dump. We have women and men who visit local prisons on a weekly basis, coming out of this church and going to area prisons. We're intimately involved with Freedom Farm, a ministry that helps pull men out of the bondage of addiction. Amen. There's a nonprofit called Green Street Catering. It's run by ABF members Hal and Chastity Hussain, and it's run out of this building. And the whole point is to feed people in this community. 250 to 350 meals leave this building every Thursday night to people who need it. 250 to 350 people. And some of you help deliver those. Sometimes they go to people that don't have a meal. And sometimes they go to people who've been really sick and haven't been able to get up and cook the meal. But that's incredible. We have a food pantry in our shed that, that also helps people in this community. Sometimes church members will come by, get a couple bags of groceries, and just drop it on a doorstep that they know needs it. In the last five years, listen to this one. In the last five years, over a quarter of a million dollars has come through the ABF Benevolence Fund to help people in this church and in this community. Over a quarter of a million dollars. There were a few people that said um, that... Uh, the building would probably distract us from some of this kind of stuff. Did you know that giving actually doubled in the Benevolence Fund while we were in phase one of the building? Isn't that encouraging? We gave more to people who needed it in this church and people outside of this community. We doubled it during the building campaign. So those people were wrong. It didn't happen. A year ago today, a tsunami hit Japan and killed thousands of people destroyed very large sections of the country. Kenny Isaacs, one of the elders in our church who works for Samaritan's Purse, is there today on this one-year anniversary. And before he left, he sent the elders an email. And I just want to read it to you because it highlights more of what's going on through and out of this body. 
He says this, Many people from Boone, several from ABF, are working there for Samaritan's Purse and serving the people of the affected region, rebuilding, cleaning, and ministering. There are frequently repeated stories from multiple sources of a spiritual awakening in Japan in the Dahaku region, the area of greatest damage. Pastors and missionaries report that they have seen more people recognize God and come to faith in Christ over the past year than over the previous 20 years. Praise God. I share this because, this is Kenny talking, I share this because so many folks from Samaritan's Purse come out of Alliance Boone. Just think, a small gymnasium church with an awkwardly unfinished exoskeleton structure out front is in some way being used by God to introduce his son Jesus to a relatively closed culture on the other side of the world. He has chosen us not only to reach out in Wataga, but also on the other side of the world. And half a dozen men left from this church. They just said, I can put all this to the side for a little while. I'm going there to help. Some of them are still there. Some of them have since returned. That's the kind of stuff that's going on through this body. Isn't that encouraging? The list could continue, but we're running out of time. But I think it illustrates what God is doing in the midst of us and through us. I think there's plenty of room to grow more zealous in these works, but there's good things happening. I praise God that 200 people responded just two weeks ago and said they want to be more involved in the ministry of this church. We are a Christ-exalting church that is doing good deeds in the name of Jesus. We're doing it locally, and we're doing it around the world. Praise God. So it should not surprise us that the youth in this church are getting in on the action. They have some good... uh, Things to look to, some good role models, and they are motivated. In Kampala, Uganda, there is a group of over 100 orphans uh, who do not have a permanent facility to call home. They don't have a place to bathe on a regular basis, and their meals are not what you and I would consider meals. Some of the adults who are ministering to those kids are trying to give them an education, but 10 kids sharing a desk and a textbook is not an ideal situation. And it's hard to learn when you're hungry and tired because you don't have a decent bed. Now, I know that that kind of story could be repeated over and over. Our world is a broken place. And I know that there are stories that are much worse than this one. But three of our high school youth uh, were with these orphans this past summer through Samaritan's Purse. So when they close their eyes at night, they can see their faces and they can hear their voices. When they sit down to eat, they can picture what those orphans have on their plate or what they don't have on their plate. So they began mobilizing an effort to raise funds to help these kids get a permanent facility and meet some of these basic needs. It's not something I initiated or started. It's something that started from from them and started up, moving up like that. Um, It's mentioned on the back of your bulletin this morning. If you would love to join the effort, that would be uh, very encouraging to them. But they, they came to me about two months ago, and they asked for help. And when they told me that they wanted to raise $13,000 to help these kids, I confessed that I felt rather overwhelmed, had a big lump in my throat, and said, oh, really? (laughs) Okay. But in that moment, I heard God say, I'm in this. It wasn't an audible voice, but it was a clear moving of his spirit in my heart. So I said, okay, and just started walking with them. And as I did, God revealed to me that I have a cynical, sinful tendency You see, when I hear about massive problems like world hunger or child trafficking, I immediately think, I can't fix that problem. I become overwhelmed by the size of the issue, and the result is that I do nothing. Nothing. 
In our study of Ephesians, we've been learning that God calls us to be a united body that joins together for the glory of God and the good of the church and the lost world. As I've been walking with these teens, I've realized that my spiritual default setting is very individualistic. I can't fix that problem. I don't have $13,000. That's pretty typical, I think, American Christian kind of thinking. But I think part of what Paul is showing us in Ephesians is that the church is meant to work as one towards that which pleases God and blesses others. And that's why 200 people saying, I want to become more involved is so exciting and so incredible. We need more people ministering to these kids. We need more people ministering to these teens. We need more people welcoming, I guess, because there's a lot going on in the midst of those hearts. There's a lot of people walking in needing uh, the truth and help. We need people ministering in the body. So 200 people is very encouraging. And caring for the poor and the orphan and those in bondage is also very near to God, the Father's heart. So as a high school youth group, we are trying to minister to those in need. And we've taken on our biggest challenge yet. We're trying to raise $13,000 for this orphanage. It seems like an absurd amount of money for a bunch of high schoolers to raise. But they did this thing called math that they learned in school. And if 43 youth raise around $300, they've done it. That's a lot easier number to get our brains around, isn't it? That's the power of many people joining together and the nature of math. (laughs) If you want to join us, uh, there's going to be some teenagers at these stations in the back. You can talk to them about it. You can uh, contribute if you feel so led. Um, God is calling us to spend ourselves for those in need. And I praise God that this is a church that enjoys doing that and is doing it in many ways already. Let's continue to trade in that typical American lifestyle of me and my stuff. Let's get radical. Let's grow in our zeal as a body. Our time is short. The need is great. And God is calling us to it. You and I might spend a